Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Guardian. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here Here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. Hello, this is Brexit Memes, The Guardian's weekly podcast on the seemingly unstoppable slow-motion car crash, or, depending on your point of view, the never-ending cornucopia of delights, that is, Brexit. I'm joking, of course, it's becoming harder and harder to argue that if things carry on as they're going, it isn't going to be a car crash. At least, that's if you believe the people who make the actual cars, who should presumably know something about it, but more of that later. So, as ever, plenty for us to chew on since last week. The government saw off the challenge of the last outstanding rebel Tory amendment on the EU withdrawal bill, the one about giving MPs a meaningful vote on what happens next if Parliament rejects the final Brexit deal after making a last gasp concession. But it's only really kicked the can down the road and put off for another day the inevitable parliamentary showdown between Brexiters and Tory Remainers, with more crunch votes coming next month, particularly on keeping Britain in the or a customs union. So we'll be wondering how much longer the Prime Minister can get away with trying to keep everybody happy. Meanwhile, in what does start to feel like something of a step change, companies, and not the smallest ones, and their lobbies, are queuing up to warn of the cataclysmic consequences of the UK leaving the customs union. First there was Airbus, then BMW, then Siemens, then the CBI, all saying their British operations will be threatened, putting tens of thousands of jobs at risk if just-in-time delivery systems are messed with by customs or other controls at Britain's ports and continental ports. And just this morning, as we were about to record this episode of Brexit Means, in fact, the SMMT, which is basically Britain's car industry, said investment had nearly halved and nearly 900,000 jobs were in play unless the government shifts its red lines. So business, it seems, really is starting to fight back. 
Then, not to forget, we had 100,000, or well over, according to many estimates, people taking part in a peaceful march demanding a people's vote on the final deal. Uh, The main battleground, of course, remains Parliament and Brussels. Let's not forget there's a European Council summit at the end of the week that was once billed as a key moment in the Brexit process. But, you know, this march was at the very least heartening for the pro-European cause, and it certainly adds to the pressure on the government. So taken all together, I think the sort of the theme of this of this podcast is going to be the question, is the ground maybe starting to shift? Is Theresa May heading, as more and more people seem to think, towards a, a customs union and single market for goods but not services landing? And how would the EU, her own party's Brexiters and Leave voters cope? So with me to discuss all this are two people eminently qualified to make sense of it all, The Guardian's Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin and Jonathan Liss, deputy head of the think tank British Influence and an eloquent occasional commenter in the paper's pages as well. Welcome to both of you. Jonathan, let's start with this business question, shall we? Because it does feel like a a bit of a moment. Um, I mean, this is a very strong lineup of very serious businesses Many, of course, with a strong European connection, beginning to ring the alarm bell rather loudly and making some very pointed criticisms of the government's Brexit approach. There's a particular irony, I suppose, of a German car maker coming out and saying it wouldn't be able to actually continue making cars in the UK if the government sticks to its positions. But, you know, is this the meaning that, I mean, the Siemens, boss of Siemens, I think at the end of last week, put it quite summed it up quite well when he said, you know, that th- this feels like reality beginning to set in. Yeah. Is he right? Absolutely. And we're going to have more of it. I suppose we're now at the business end of Brexit and the negotiations have to be wrapped up by October, which means that the government's utopian rainbow thinking eventually has to, to come to an end. And the can has been kicked down the road for the last year and a half. And eventually it has to actually f- find its destination. And so businesses have been sitting on their on their hands, if you like, for the last year, saying all this stuff in private but too scared of the media, um, sort of the government, the government sort of, you know, um, strong arming uh, to come out in public. And now you're always going to have a situation where the first people start their heads above the parapet and embolden others to say the same. So we're going to expect kind of the floodgates open. (coughs) Exactly. So expect a lot of this in the coming weeks. And Theresa May has not done herself any favours when she insisted or and, you know, Fox, Liam Fox uh, as well, insisted after last week's vote that no deal was still firmly on the table, it couldn't have set a worse signal for business. And I think that might have been what finally prompted them to say, well, if you're going to uh, not care about business, then why should we care about you? Why should we care about sort of sitting on our hands anymore? And so they are now saying, pointing out just simple facts, if we leave without a deal, that means that there is no point in them remaining here. There's no point in them investing here. Um, the supply chains are ruined. There'll be tariffs automatically. Sort of standards will, will diverge. There is no point in them staying here when they could base their operations elsewhere. Mm, exactly. I mean, that's a very good point that it is facts and not arguments, I suppose. Uh, I mean, the evidence really is beginning to stack up. We had that, that study in the in the FT who a- analysed a, a, an average of, of across several sort of economic med- models and that suggested that by the end of the first quarter of this year, the UK economy was 1.2% smaller than it would have been without the Brexit vote. That represents £24 billion hit to the economy uh, or you know, a Brexit cost of roughly £450 million a week. But, I mean, fascinating, really, the Brexiteers' response. Boris Johnson's four-letter expletive. Jeremy Hunt saying that Airbus's comments were completely inappropriate. You know, this is from the so-called party of business. Are they... they 
Are they getting rattled? And and more sort of broadly, I mean, it occurred to me that that the sort of the really interesting question behind this, maybe if we are thinking that we're getting towards a a sort of a shift in in attitudes, because it's possible to say that maybe before the onus was sort of on the pro-EU proponents of, of what the Brexiters called Project Fear to sort of justify their, their doomsday scenarios. But now we're gradually moving to a place where the onus is shifting and it might now be the turn of the Brexiters to have to kind of justify what you might call their project fantasy. You're absolutely right, John, and that is why we're seeing this backlash. That's why we're seeing these sort of rattled interventions, as you point out. And Jeremy Hunt, who now calls himself a Brexiter, Boris Johnson saying business. Of course, when he says that, what he's really saying is fuck workers, fuck jobs, fuck the economy, to which the British people might say, well, fuck you. And so <laughs> we, we, it's, it's very, very difficult for them to maintain those lines when the evidence is beginning to mount. And of course, it's really important for people to understand that after this week, when we have the June EU Council Summit, at which very little is expected to be agreed on the, on the main meat and bones, we then have one final summit. And that's a summit where everything has to be signed off. So whatever doesn't get agreed now, has to be agreed then and that gives four months to square these unsquareable circles and a lot of the Brexiteers know this and that's why they're desperately trying to lash out channel the rage point people in another direction blame business of all people blame remainers blame immigrants the usual suspects when really we need to be casting (laughs) casting the blame a little bit close to home and why is it that the party of business as you say should be telling business leave this country the Conservative Party's party of business that's extraordinary anyway but the fact that so many people's jobs depend on that and the the poorest areas in Britain will be the hardest hit by that. A lot of leave areas makes it even more unforgivable. Jennifer, as Jonathan mentioned, we are but two days away from a summit, aren't we? And and EU ministers are in Luxembourg right now uh, preparing uh, that council meeting in Brussels on Thursday and Friday. Now, just a few weeks ago, everybody was calling it a crunch summit for Brexit. I mean, how much time will Brexit actually take up on Thursday and Friday, do you think? I mean, there is still no Brexit white paper from the British government, which still doesn't know what it wants from Brexit. And the summit agenda has been hijacked by other things, hasn't it? I mean, thinking of the sort of the immigration or the political immigration crisis, this is an actual immigration crisis, but the political crisis over immigration. What place will Brexit actually occupy on the summit agenda? Well, not very much. I mean, my prediction would be that on, uh, on Friday morning, EU leaders will perhaps talk this over for about an hour and they will, they will sign off some pre-prepared conclusions, giving a not too subtle warning to the British government that they haven't made enough progress and they really need to speed up and, um, and be more re- realistic about what uh, agreement they might strike with the EU. But I don't think EU leaders will be devoting very much time to this at all. It's certainly not uppermost in, in people's minds here and in EU capitals. And I think these days the only people who are calling it a, a crunch summit are Conservative government ministers or, or backbenchers. And I'm sort of struck every time I switch on the British radio, the BBC, and hear ministers making these kind of statements that Theresa May will be going off to Brussels with, you know, to, to strike a deal. Well, that's, that's really far from the case, and she, she won't be negotiating Brexit it's, at all. It's, it's possible she will update um, EU leaders on Thursday, but usually this kind of update is relegated to a few minutes over coffee and, and petit four at the end of a, a dinner. But it's really not on the EU's agenda, as you say, 
the, the big dominant theme of this summit is going to be all about migration. And as you rightly say, it's a political crisis. It's not a, uh, a crisis over, over numbers. But that's, um, that's really at the foremost of EU leaders' minds. And, and I think they're quite happy for, for Michel Barnier to do the, the technical heavy work on Brexit. And they're happy to sign off on what he uh, thinks they, they should be saying. Well, I mean, do we have any, I mean, you say there might be a, we, we might hear some kind of a warning. I mean, do you, do we have any idea what that might say? And what, I mean, what actually is, what does that, if, assuming there is no progress, concrete progress made, which seems very likely, what are the key areas that are, that, that, that are left to decide before October? Well, the, the draft conclusions that we've seen show that EU leaders will express their concern that no substantial progress has yet been achieved on agreeing a backstop on Ireland. So it does all come back to Ireland again, the, the circle that can't be squared when it comes to um, the customs union and avoiding a hard border on the island of Ireland. So that's a big worry for everyone. And I think there will be um, a warning to the British government to show more, more realism about how they're approaching these negotiations. I think there's a, a very strong sense from the negotiations team in Brussels, that the political reality hasn't bitten yet for the government, that they continue to think they can have all sorts of access to the single market that's, that simply won't be available to the UK as a non-EU member state. So I think EU leaders will really sort of seek to uh, hammer that message home in their official conclusions. Right. Yes. Now, Jonathan, you're not very confident of any progress until those those British red lines shift. Uh, it's absolutely as Jennifer just said. There are three red lines that the government has, has put down which make this circle completely unsquareable, um, which are uh, free movement of people, um, trade deals with third countries and uh, jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Um, the EU can say as many times as it likes, you can't uh, sort of get a deal um, and still retain those, those red lines, but the government won't listen until it has to listen. And so there seems to be an idea that the EU will let Britain off this time. Um, they'll, you know, it's, they're not going to say Brexit um, can't be done, but they're going to sound this warning and then just give in a way, the UK government more rope to hang itself. Because what you really have ultimately is two very clear options. I'd be interested to see if Jennifer uh, agrees with this. But you either have a sea border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, in which Northern Ireland remains in the customs union and a single market for goods. Um, And that means that uh, goods will either have to be checked for regulations or regulations and tariffs, depending on if we're in the customs union as well, um, from goods arriving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. The alternative to that is that the whole UK stays in the whole customs union and the whole single market. Because if the UK, what the UK is trying to do at the moment is extend the backstop from Northern Ireland to the whole UK, the EU says you can't do that because that's cherry picking the single market. So this whole idea of single market for goods, it just won't mush, will have to be in the whole single market. And that means, you guessed it, free movement to people. Jennifer, is it as simple as that? Well, I, I haven't heard anyone uh, in Brussels come up with it with a different proposal, and I think that, and I think Donovan <laughs> said out very clearly what the what the choices are and the starkness of the choices. And yes, there does seem to be increasing optimism in London that there will be some kind of landing zone on the single market for goods with a, um, some flexibility on free movement of people, and maybe the UK makes a concession on services. But that's not what I'm hearing from from uh, officials in Brussels. They they don't look very kindly on that option. Again, it, they see it as cherry picking. They see it as the UK trying to have, have its cake and eat it. It comes back to the integrity of the single market, these themes that the EU have been stressing all along. And I, and I really think it's, it's getting to the point where the government simply has to make a choice.
Okay, let's talk about the a little bit about the the sort of catastrophe scenario because there has also been a lot of talk and from both sides over the past few days about preparations or or not for a no deal. Jonathan David Davis said last week that insisted the government's you know doing a lot to prepare for a no deal. Liam Fox says the UK is absolutely ready to to walk away. I mean, is this serious? No, <laughs> totally, totally insane. They know it is. It, this is this is this is game playing, and it's and it's you can sometimes allow politicians their games, but not when um, thousands of jobs depend on it. Not when the not when the economy depends on it. This is totally unforgivable, and it's also unprecedented. Um, no deal. Um, you can't say this enough. No deal. Means means that planes will not be able to fly between the UK and the EU. That is all there is to it because you fall out of the aviation mechanisms. It means that uh, you risk radiotherapy patients and not having access uh, to radioisotopes because they get stuck at the border and also because we fall out of your atom. It means that the pound plunges. It means the recession is guaranteed. It means that jobs are lost overnight. This is what it means for a government to even entertain such a proposal is totally extraordinary. And it also is counterproductive because it just makes the EU think that we're not serious because the EU knows that the UK can't threaten this realistically. And the more that it does threaten it, you either have to ask, well, are they serious or are they just really bad bluffers? If they're serious, it's a disaster. And if they're really bad bluffers, it's a disaster because it means that we can't negotiate with these people. They're not serious. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Jennifer Jean-Claude Juncker also said last week that the at least that the bloc had to be realistic um, about what he described as the dangerous state of the negotiations. Is that also where the EU is coming from? Are our officials really counting on, on talks breaking down or the possibility of talks breaking down altogether, do you think? I think people are more worried about it than they were two months ago, say. And when they do hear this kind of talk from Liam Fox and others, yes, they might see it as game playing, but they also do see it as elevating the risk of a no-deal Brexit. Although I think the odds-on assumption is that the UK will, will negotiate... Um, a deal with the EU, but nonetheless, that risk of a no deal has gone up and, and the EU, as a consequence, is preparing for that. So they are looking at flexibility and financial rules at how the EU budget could be used to help countries that might be, be hit by the brunt of a no deal Brexit, especially Ireland, Belgium, the Netherlands. These are all the countries in people's minds that have the most to lose on the, on the EU side. So I think they, they, are, they are counting on on talks to to conclude with a deal but nonetheless this this threat um, is being taken very seriously the eu will obviously look at the evidence that the uk has given them so far as in any game you look at uh, how the player is at in the past and you have seen uh, since the negotiations started that the uk has promised everything um, from the very first day when you say we're going to have the row of the summer over sequencing and then capitulated that day and so we've seen as in the in december before the joint report when the uk capitulated so the uk ultimately gives it's up caved- it caves down at every step. It caves in at the last minute. And it's really, it's really, it's really odd because you would have a lot more credibility if you sort of caved gradually <laughs> so people didn't know you were caving. But instead, you kind of put on this show about how and how we're going to beat those Europeans and at the last minute, then you cave, which you might have you know, foreseen before you did it. And so the EU has... That you might obviously think that things could go badly, but at the same time, you could see the evidence, which is that the UK is not going to is not going to sort of carry out its bluffs. Yes, although on the, the point about caving in is a really interesting one because when the UK caved in in, in December on the on the uh, financial settlement on paying the EU money, and when it caved in on, on 
in March on agreeing to the EU's terms of a transition, there was still a certain amount of ambiguity about the final deal. And we are going to get to a point soon, very soon, where all the ambiguity will have to be stripped away. And then, so that's, I think for EU officials, that raises the question, you know, will, will the UK continue on this trend of always sort of talking uh, very uh, ferociously and then, and then finally caving in? And it does, uh, it does sort of raise a bit more uncertainty in people's minds whether that will happen again. But, but yes, they certainly see that the UK has, has threatened before to leave the table and then, well, re- you know, really for, for the EU, that's, that's seen as an empty threat. Yes. I mean, I suppose it does all come down really to the crunch question is when is, as as you say, Jennifer, that ambiguity finally going to be stripped away? And there are some hopes, I don't know whether they are realistic or not, that some things might be resolved, at least at this this famous sort of war cabinet away day gathering that's scheduled for Chequers, the prime minister's country retreat at the beginning of next month. Because, you know, the the root problem, obviously, is, uh, as we've been saying all along, uh, the government utter inability to sort of get off the fence and actually say what kind of Brexit it wants and can realistically expect the the EU to accept. Now, Jonathan, there's been, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but just sort of unpick it a little bit, if you would. There's been quite a lot of speculation, hasn't there, over uh, the last few days and and quite a lot of, of priming by Whitehall officials promoting it. That you know, Theresa May is is hopefully heading towards some kind of sort of landing strip that looks a bit like staying in the customs union and trying to be in a, a single market for goods with some kind of divergence allowed on 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 services. Now, you, that's that's simply not going to wash as far as you're concerned. I don't see why the EU would allow it. It doesn't have to. The EU has been very clear that um, from the very from the very beginning that you can't have one freedom of the single market without having all four freedoms. And so the UK to ask for the single market and goods uh, is is a total it's a total sort of negation of that. But also it doesn't make any sense to the UK perspective either because the UK obviously depends on services. Mm. So the UK that means mm. the UK that gets it's terrible deals on services. Of its economy. Yeah. Exactly. And also it's really like the whole point of the UK's staying outside the customs union what the UK has always wanted is to have these mythical trade deals with third countries now if you're in the single market for goods um, that means that you have to uh, keep your uh, regulations tied that's, that limits what you can do with other countries and, and if you're in the customs union that obviously limits the, the tariffs so that in, in practice it means that you can only have uh, deals with third countries based on, on services anyway uh, which a lot of countries wouldn't even begin to entertain countries like China and the US aren't really interested in that for the UK Right Jennifer is that something that the EU would ever entertain a kind of a split single market I, I, I can't see it happening and there's no sign that, um, in EU member states or in the institutions that anyone is prepared to entertain that idea there's a real fear about destroying the single market by a thousand cuts by giving the UK such a special deal that then the the EU member states no longer want to, to sign up to all the rules and I think that that logic which was true on the, on the 24th of June 2016 when the EU gave its initial response to the referendum is still true today two years later there's no sign that the EU is willing to compromise in this way just on this issue about any negotiation a negotiating partner will offer what it feels it has to offer. The EU is in such a strong position and the UK is in such a weak position that the EU does not need to offer the UK sort of bits of the single market because it doesn't have to. The EU is, is, has made its offer, which is a whole single market or none of it, effectively. And the UK has so few cards over the EU, in fact none, that it's in no position to ask for anything else. And that is really the overriding point. It's, it's all about power dynamics. The EU will offer what it has to offer. It doesn't have to offer this. Mm.
Okay, well, none of that looks particularly promising. I mean, one thing that was uplifting uh, over the last few days, the weekend, was the People's March. It was, you know, it was a joyous occasion, I have to say, given the context and impressive in terms of numbers. It takes quite a lot to get 100,000 more uh, Brits onto the streets and many of them coming from all over the UK and certainly from well outside the the sort of elite metropolitan bubble um, that Remainers are often accused of belonging to. Jonathan, ponder that for a little bit. I mean, I suppose the real question is, will it change anything? Um, I think that... People always ask this question about marches, don't they? I mean, I went and I had a, I had a great time. It felt very festive, as you say. Um, I, I think it's about signalling and messaging. And uh, if you have a momentum uh, and other people join in, you know, it's interesting that uh, this week we're seeing a you know, left-wing group made up of former momentum leaders, for example, calling for a people's vote. Uh, I just uh, wrote a piece uh, in Prospect last week, <laughs> a little plug, about how you could win a referendum from the left. It, it could not be uh, a repeat of the 2016 campaign. It would have to show people that it shared their concerns it was on their side and that it was tackling issues such as austerity and uh, the crisis in the health service education and so on and that leaving the eu wasn't the answer and so it really would have to be a people's campaign and that wasn't sort of talking in abstract terms but it was really addressing the concerns people have as in a general election campaign but of course it's a huge uphill struggle because um none of the uh, neither the conservative front bench nor the labor front bench is currently in favor of it and you'd have to have a huge change in public opinion and and uh, at the moment, uh, those things are, are, are slow to slow to appear. Mm. But certainly, adding pressure—the general sort of atmosphere of pressure on the government—you'd have yeah, to say, absolutely. taken in conjunction with you know these business warnings, uh, the possibility of further uh, parliamentary rebellions. Yeah. I mean, it's all beginning to sort of everything. The vortex everything, is beginning to speed up. Everything is coalescing, and because—and uh, I'm glad that Jennifer agrees with that assessment—that May is going to be trapped by two possibilities: either sea border, uh, which the DUP. Uh, may well try to bring her down over along with a lot of conservatives and uh, labor labor mps as well because that splits the uk's internal market or a, a fully soft brexit which would be unacceptable to the brexiteers and the tory party so she um, might not be long for this prime ministerial world and that sort of changes everything because then you have a brexit in complete free fall uh, there'll be a lot of demands um, possibly on both sides actually um, to change course and then the demand for people's vote could become irresistible i mean oddly jennifer i would imagine i mean brussels wouldn't welcome a change of government, would it? Well, I think officially they would never they would never say that. But in, you know, unofficially, of course, I've, I think it would it would throw everything into confusion. And there's already an awful lot of confusion about the the process. I mean, I, I think in, in general, Brussels would welcome the UK reversing its decision and deciding to stay in the EU. But nobody thinks that's going to happen. And that the march that happened in the weekend, it's, it was certainly n- noted, and pe- people have taken great interest in it. It's one of the, the great ironies of Brexit now that in the UK we have a, the, the most active pro-EU EU movement than probably any other country in the EU at the moment. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, people like Donald Tusk, they, they talk to Theresa May, and Theresa May and other government ministers, um, what they are telling the EU side is that, you know, that the will of the people requires Brexit to happen, and that everything flows from that vote on the 23rd of June two years ago. And as a result, nobody takes seriously the idea that the UK is going to reverse its decision, and Brexit is, is seen as almost almost inevitable, something regrettable, but something now that is very unlikely to be reversed. Uh, but, well, just the, just the point on that, the EU has been clear, as Jennifer said, that they would welcome us uh, a change in decision. And so that's one of the arguments out of the way. Like, uh, we can 
then uh, ask for an extension of Article 50 in order to have that referendum, have the referendum, and then, if necessary, the EU would allow us to revoke Article 50. So there are sort of a lot of uh, a lot of roadblocks have been cleared, and so that there is still a way forward. The, the difficulty is if we go after March 2019, go into a transition period, and then try to rejoin the EU, there might be a lot of obstacles uh, put in our way, such as you know the requirements to join the Euro Schengen and so on, and that's something that we have to bear in mind as a, as a difficulty. All right. Well, that is about it for this week, I'm afraid. My thanks to Jonathan and to Jennifer for joining me. Please do subscribe and review on all of your favourite podcatchers as ever. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Please keep those emails coming. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Max Sanderson. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 